This is a Hipsters of the Coast podcast. Welcome to the Doom Travelers Podcast. This week we are very short-handed. This is the summer season, of course, so people are traveling and or spending time with their girlfriends. So we are down Rich Stein and Matt Jones, and we are left with me, David McCoy, to host this absurd podcast. And uh, joining me, the guy who actually knows something about magic, uh, Brendan McNamara. Thanks thanks for joining me this this weekend, BMAC. Howdy, howdy. Yeah, I was... I almost wasn't able to make it because I was playing in the Magic Online Sealed PTQ today, but I probably would still be playing it if if I hadn't been eliminated, but I was, so here I am. (laughs) Yeah, here we are. Uh, So, this weekend was Pro Tour uh, Magic Origins. It was in uh, Vancouver, BC, uh, just north of my hometown of Seattle. And, uh, I don't know, it was a a pretty interesting Pro Tour. a lot of ex- the expected decks were there. Um, the limited portion itself wasn't entirely surprising. It was fun to watch as usual, but uh, nobody made any obscene deck choices or crazy picks uh, that drove Twitter mad. Uh, yeah, I mean, the most interesting deck, I think, not necessarily the most successful, but most interesting was the uh, Demonic Pack deck that uh, uh, De Leon, uh, previous Pro Tour champion, showed up with. Uh, did you get a chance to see that, BMAC? Yeah, it looked pretty cool. I remember seeing one game where he had like three of them out or something. <laughs> like, that is, looks a little bit absurd. But yeah, Demonic Pact, if you can, like the basic idea is that you have this, the invasive species from M15, that's a three and a green, three, three, that when it enters the battlefield, you have to pick up one of your permanents. Uh, and so you you could just, run out your demonic packs and get your value chain going of draining life and drawing cards. And then like, you don't even have to cast invasive species. You can cast woodland bellower and then get an invasive species for free. Yeah. Um, and then you use the invasive species cool. to bounce the, uh, bounce the pact and reset it if yep. you choose to replay it. Um, yeah, it looked pretty cool. It didn't look like it was especially well suited. <laughs> seems yeah. like if people are attacking you with lots of small red creatures and burning your face, the, Demonic Pact might be a little too slow to make a difference. Yeah. Um, the other deck that made uh, a pretty big impact was the uh, Blue, Red, and Soul Artifact deck that I believe uh, a bunch of big teams settled on. Uh, I know Channel Fireball was playing it. Uh, so both Luis, Scott Vargas, and uh, Efro were playing it. Uh, that deck, of course, is uh, built around the Blue Enchantment uh, and Soul Artifact that makes a any artifact, a artifact creature with base toughness five, uh, base, tu- base toughness of five five. So basically, you put it on a dark steel citadel, or you put it on a, um, a ghost fire blade, or you put it on an ornithopter, and uh, go to town. And then it also leveraged the the power of the new hangerback locker from M- MTG Origin or uh, Magic Origin. Uh, it's it's interesting, Brennan, to see how that deck has evolved over the past, what, three sets now? Uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, it, it, it's had the, the core of the, uh, Ghost Fire Blade and Soul Artifact Ornithopter. You know, it's had that core for a couple sets now, but it really seems to take something like Hangerback Walker to make it actually uh, viable in a tournament like the Pro Tour. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, those cards, like, and Soul Artifact is a very, very powerful card if you've got a lot of cheap artifacts to play. And, you know, Dark Steel Citadel has been around for a little while. And Ghostfire Blade is very, very powerful. I mean, Ghostfire, like, Insole Artifact gets played sometimes in the modern Affinity decks. And Ghostfire Blade got tested in it and was almost good enough. It's just, you know, you only really need four cranial platings. Um, you don't quite need the Ghostfire Blade also. Although, it, like, it, there are reasonable arguments for it, including that it pumps toughness. And so, you know, you can... A cranial plating is not going to keep your creature alive, whereas a Ghostfire Blade might, you know, shut down and electrolyze or something. Uh, and so those cards have been sitting there, like modern playable cards that can be quite powerful. And I think there just wasn't quite enough of a, you know, critical mass to make it into a deck where you could afford to play that many bad cards like Ornithopters because they were just so good. And now you've got Hangerback Walker, which is just an amazing card, uh, and is probably going to be played in lots of standard decks for the next year. And you've, you know, and they got like Whirler Rogue, which the decks were playing, which I mean, four mana, you get two artifacts, you can use, you can use the unblock ability. You know, you could just, you know, you, you like if you have, you get your opponent down to five. And you've got something with Soul Artifact, and they've got blockers, and then you just play you play Whirler Rogue, and just you know you could tap your Ghostfire Blade or whatever random artifacts. You don't even have to tap those the thopters you make. Yeah, of course, it's you know it wasn't just Hangerback Walker that made it into uh, the deck from the new set. They were also playing uh, Whirler Rogue, like you said, but also uh, uh, Pro Tour finalist uh, Mike Segrist was even playing the uh, the Colorless Land that you can sack to make two Thopter tokens. Uh, yeah, I was, I was interested to see if people would play that card because it's really good. Um, and the problem, it, it's funny, it might have, it's theoretically possible that it ended up costing him the Pro Tour. Yeah. Um, because the problem is you're obviously playing four Ghost Fire Blades. And so then you're adding like a fifth colorless land in a deck that, you know, needs double blue and wants to have red and some, sometimes wants well, a lot of red, especially if you're like trying to go off a shrapnel class. It's nice to have multiple red sources. And so it's just the mana is not as clean as it could be. And so then, you know, and like Sigurus in his famous final game of the Pro Tour this year when he had to mulligan all the way down and he mulliganed to his four-card hand and the only land in his four-card hand was a mana confluence. <laughs> <laughs> He's playing against mono red. And I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if, you have to play Mana Confluence in that deck, or if you just have to do that once you put Foundry to consoles in, yeah, or something. And yeah, I mean, it was interesting watching the finals. So the the for those of you that maybe didn't get a chance to watch it, uh, the finals ended up being uh, Mono Red, uh, piloted by Yoel Larson, uh, who ended up winning against uh, Mike Segrist, who was playing Blue Red um, and Soul Artifact, and. It came down to a game five in which Mike Segrist mulliganed all the way down to three. And uh, LSV, who was commentating the final, 
uh, and also played the deck in the Pro Tour, was saying that, you know, you have to mulligan extremely aggressively with this deck because uh, it's basically a combo deck. You have to have something like Insular Artifact or something like Ghost Fire Blade in your opening hand, otherwise you're just not doing anything. Um, and we saw that exact situation play out in the quarterfinals when Steven Berrios, the other blue-red and solar artifact deck in the top eight, he didn't mulligan his hands very aggressively. He kept hands that were full of just ornithopters and springleaf drums and didn't do anything. Um, and he got absolutely rolled over by a green-red devotion player, or a green-red devotion deck that should have theoretically had a very poor matchup. Um, and so... As, as terrible as it must have been for Mike Seegers to mulligan all the, way, all the way down to three, it's seems like that's what you're exactly exactly what you're supposed to do. Mulligan to your combo pieces and hope you get there. So interesting. Find. Yeah, I think that I think that like that deck is it's definitely weaker than the modern affinity deck um, in that you just don't have a huge critical mass of incredibly powerful cards. I mean, you don't have you know plating and arcbound ravager and multiple cards like that that are just you know game winning cards. And so anytime you're playing this one of these sorts of artifact decks and like if you're trying to play in soul or you know have have a an ornithopter plus something to make it better, you know, that's gonna lead to mulligans and I think this deck is a little less consistent than like the modern version and so it's gonna mulligan a little more. It looks like it actually has some pretty good staying power in the long game. Um, and that's definitely the reason why you would want to play Foundry of the Consoles is that even if they wipe you out and like you board it in Thopter Spy Network or something and they yeah. kill all your artifacts, you could sack it and get the chain going again. Yeah. Um, but it does, I feel like it's not going to be played as much as it might be for being obviously one of the best, strongest, most top performing decks at the Pro Tour that also looks really fun. Just because... You know, people are not going to want to have to mulligan and lose games where they're just sitting with like three ornithopters in play, <laughs> or they, they they draw three shrapnel blasts and they do fifteen damage to their opponent and then sit there and die. Yeah, and, and the problem is if you're playing against a deck like Mono Red, you just don't have the time. Yeah, uh, if you're playing slower decks, I think that you have a little bit of time to maneuver, and you can eke out some victories. Yeah, but. and uh, of course the. Uh, the most played deck in the top eight this weekend was uh, was mono red. Um, the mono red decks were already pretty strong uh, with Stoke the Flames and um, Goblin Heel Cutter and uh, Goblin Rabble Master. Um, and these uh, these new red decks have taken cards from Magic Origins like Abbot of Carol Keep, which allows them to uh, uh, exile the top card of their library and play it that turn. Um, card draw, basically, for a mono-red deck that should not have access to it. Um, and then they all took advantage of uh, the new burn spell from Magic Origins, uh, Exquisite Firecraft, which is basically, you know, a sorcery speed, three mana, four damage spell, uh, which the deck lost, well, the burn deck lost, um, with the rotation of uh, uh, RTR, uh, the, the Boros burn four, gain four. Um, yeah, Boros Charm. Yeah, Boros Charm. And, uh, or, and like, or War Leaders. War Leaders Helix and Boros Charm. Um, yeah. yeah, so, so losing, losing those burn spells uh, really reduced a lot of the, the reach that these red decks had. But Exquisite Firecraft you know, replaces uh, some underwhelming 
uh, burn spells in order to do four damage in one card. Um, and it's uncounterable if you have spell mastery, which yeah. you probably have spell mastery in this deck. Yeah. And that just makes it really hard for a control deck to get out of things. Yeah, I mean, these mono red decks, it's, it's crazy how far red has come in the past yeah, few I mean, years. It's interesting because I remember, you know, a couple years ago when I would I would pretty regularly read Mark Rosewonder's like columns and his blogatog Tumblr and stuff where he'd talk about you know different things they're trying in design and directions they're taking and they've obviously been trying to make red better, make it less one dimensional. Uh, I think the biggest thing is like adding in the exiling a card kind of card draw where you can play a card this extra card this turn and you know that started with Chandra. Pyromaster and like Abbot of Carol Keep is amazing. That card, yeah. I mean, the fact that you've got a burn deck that can draw a card while also playing a two one that you know is potentially better than Monastery Swiftspear as a one two. You know, they both have prowess. And there's yeah. It should be it should be noted that it does have prowess. That like being able to draw a card is very important, but prowess should not be missed on this card. It, it makes it very hard to block, and it can do a lot of damage when it draws you a burn spell. Um, yeah, they, they clearly have succeeded in making red not necessarily the best color in Magic, but a very powerful color. Yeah, I mean, it's Man, much more flexible than it used to be. Yeah. And they, I mean, red has always been good, you know, like of all of the monocolor decks, red is the one that's almost always the first one available in a format. You know, there there have been a lot of mono red burn and beatdown decks and goblin decks in the past, but you know now that they're starting to give them more versatile cards like Abbott and like Outpost Siege and these cards that can help them get ahead and not just lose if someone gains five life or ten life. Yeah, although this, I mean, this one may still lose if people start playing Feed the Clan <laughs> again. Yeah, I mean the burn spells. In for red have definitely gotten worse over the years, but the creatures have gotten significantly better. Um, you know, you you have your uh, heel cutters and your lightning berserkers and your uh, zergo bell strikers that have um, dash and that ability for red to continue applying pressure with their creatures, but not leaving them on the battlefield to get swept away um, or killed with sorcery speed removal. Um, like that is a flexibility that when I played mono red, when I first came back to the, uh, to magic a couple of years ago, like that's a red didn't have anything like that. You played all your creatures out and you prayed that they couldn't, uh, wipe the board. You know, you, you played that Supreme verdict, uh, was either not in their hand or they, uh, didn't have the mana to cast it. Um, yeah. And so, and so mono red is just significantly stronger, uh, than it's, than it's been in the past couple of years. Well, and it's interesting that mono red decks basically have won the last two Pro Tours. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lar Joel Larson won with straight mono red this Pro Tour this weekend, and then the last one was won by Martin Dang playing Atarka Red. Yeah. And they're both, you know, Martin Dang is Norwegian, Joel Larson is Swedish. They test together on the same team. So there's like a team of, you know, Swedish and Northern European Magic players who have now won the last two Pro Tours playing red decks and perhaps seeing better than anyone else that, you know, red is really strong. And the, one of the things that I always go back to in Magic, and especially as I've looked into design of the game, is that, you know, look at what the, what the, the game designers are trying to get you to do. You know, usually 
you know, they've gotten good enough that the things they try to get you to do actually work. And it's been pretty clear, for example, that red has been pushed and that they're trying to make red a more versatile and powerful color. And so you say, sometimes if you're trying to decide, you know, which constructed deck do I play in this tournament, you know, how am I, what, how's the metagame going to shake up? Maybe you just think, this looks like one that they tried to make really good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> and it's worked the last few times. Yeah. I mean, like, we, we can move on in a second, but what, what I found interesting about the mono red decks is the, the huge variation within them. Um, and they were all very successful. Like, for example, Sam Black was playing um, uh, that one mana red enchantment uh, that lets you discard a card to, to shock something. Yeah. Um, and I think, Mike, yeah, I think Mike Flores was also playing that. Um, and yeah, it was just, it's just interesting the number of extremely powerful red cards uh, that do, I mean, that's not a new effect, but you know, uh, it's a, just such a broad range of options that mono red has, and they're, they're all extremely yeah. powerful. Yeah, you can, you can tailor a mono red deck or like a red with a little bit of splash of green or some other color to whatever you want. And it'll be, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the standard format goes forward between now and when Battle for Zendikar comes out. I mean, oftentimes this is kind of the dead season in standard because people are just waiting for cards to rotate. But, you know, you do have World Magic Cup qualifiers coming up, and the red deck looks pretty sweet, and standard PPTQs are going to be starting again in a couple weeks, uh, I think at the end of August. And so I bet that there will be, it'll be interesting seeing people metagame against each other with the different red decks, which version of a red deck works better against the hate that people are bringing, yeah. you know. It'll be. I think it's exciting, and it, and it looks cool. Yeah. And the nice thing about red decks is usually they're not the most expensive. For sure. Um, e- even if like Exquisite Firecraft is an Abbot of Carol Keep are going to be expensive cards, you know, Lightning Berserker and all of those things. Although all the creatures are pretty pretty cheap. Even like Zergo, I'm sure, is not that expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, just to round out the top eight, uh, there were two Obzon decks. You know. Obzon has been, uh, you know, that people have told the bell for Obzon multiple times over the past uh, past year, but it it always sticks around. Sperling was playing a more traditional um, Obzon control deck uh, that he made the semis with, and then uh, Yamamoto, the uh, the Japanese player who led the Pro Tour all the way through the Swiss, I was playing a um, a Mega Morph version that has been popular since. Uh, Dragons of Tarkir has come out. Um, nothing, nothing too new for either, the, either of those guys. And then there was, of course, a green-red devotion deck um, that took advantage of its opponent's uh, lack of mulliganing in, <laughs> in the blue-red uh, and solar effect deck. Anyway, so that was the top eight. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to watch today. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good pro tour. Yeah, but in the middle, there were quite a few announcements made by Ellen Bergeau, the... Uh, um, organized play director for uh, Wizards of the Coast. Um, she and Rich Hagon uh, spent about 15 minutes basically telling us what our lives were going to be like for um, next year. And uh, they had a lot of interesting th- things to say. They, uh, they announced some adjustments to the PPTQ system and the RPTQs, uh, trying to tie them closer to the uh, Pro Tours uh, that they feed into. Um, they announced uh, the GPs, uh, the new the 2016 GP season or uh, locations. They announced the 2016 Pro Tour locations. All of, all of that stuff. 
But the most interesting to me was <laughs> um, the changes in the qualifications for day two of a, of a Grand Prix and uh, the uh, adjustment to how Wizards of the Coast interacts with independently organized circuits. Um, Absolutely. So, I agree with you on this. <laughs> yeah. So in, in terms of uh, the independent series, uh, uh, Ellen Burjo announced that they were going to be adjust adjusting and I believe improving the number of Planeswalker points that you get from, the, from playing in these. Um, yeah. I believe they were treated with a uh, uh, X1 multiplier, so you got basically nothing for them. Um, and now they're, they're being given an X2 multiplier, which will make, make them uh, basically a good way to make up for the Planeswalker points you're not getting because of the old PTQ system. Um, you know, like with the new PPTQs, you, you, people are losing a lot of opportunities for high multiplier events. Um, so it seems like uh, SCG circuit will be a good way to make up those Planeswalker points. Um, but most interestingly, it appears that Wizards of the Coast will be working with Star City and maybe even TCG to award uh, Pro Tour invites at the, uh, I assume for the at least the winner of the SCG Invitational, um, maybe even the whole top eight. I, I mean, they weren't very clear, but this seems like a, yeah. a huge change. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounded like. Um, I think all, all of it's a good sign for SCG and for just tournament growth, you know, because it's true, like, like here in Denver, there's an IQ, an individual, an invitational qualifier for Star City Games Invitationals, like at least one every weekend, um, sometimes more. And so it's, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to play, but like I've played in a couple of them and then you go and look them up on planeswalkerpoints.com afterwards and it's just like, magic and the date <laughs> and yeah. you get a, and you like you went four and one and like it did pretty well and you got like 20 planeswalker points and it's kind of like what a joke and the same thing i've never played in the star city open but it was the same way and i think i think what they said now is that like the qual in, in the iqs will get a 2x multiplier and the opens will get a 4x multiplier i think um, they they don't they don't like say exactly what they're talking about because they're not going to use the terms that Star City uses. You know they're going to talk generally of independent circuits and series and the number of quali qualifiers and feeding events and stuff. But it sounds like it's going to be two X for IQs, which is great because those are basically like a PPTQ, which get four by the way. <laughs> but but you know it's, they're, they're a similar type of tournament. And then if the opens and like the invitationals are giving a four x multiplier, you know, which is still half of what a GP gets, but you know, those are relevant points. And if they do end up saying that like the winner of the Star City Invitational qualifies for the Pro Tour, I mean, many of them already are qualified for the Pro Tour. So I think that, I think they may have been willing to try this out because half the people who win them are like platinum pros already. Yeah. And so it's not a huge risk. But I think that also goes with it, that they didn't want to you know, give people Pro Tour qualifications and extra Planeswalker points if they didn't think the events were seriously competitive because mm -hmm. you know, they don't have any control over them. And so in theory, like, people could just invent events and use them to farm Planeswalker points yeah. uh, so that people could get buys. And people, like, I don't even know, it probably would be unscrupulous tournament organizers <laughs> who would just, like, let people pay them money and then not even really have a tournament just to get enough 
points to get your buys before the weekend yeah. or something. I don't know. If I mean, this this to me it seems like a product of Wizards realizing that the demand for Magic events isn't met by the uh, uh, opportunities that they provide. So the opportunities that uh, Wizards of the Coast directly provides are the PPTQs, the RPTQs, the GPs, and the Pro Tours. And I think this is a recognition that those events aren't enough anymore to either satisfy demand or satisfy the Planeswalker Point uh, requirements that they've set up for buys. Um, you know, like I know, uh, like uh, one of our uh, Brooklyn friends, uh, Zach Ortz, has had issues getting enough Planeswalker points for even one buy because uh, the PTQs used to give you so many more Planeswalker points than the PPTQs do. So if you go to the same number of events, all of a sudden you're getting about half the points. Um, and, you know, he's just fallen off the, uh, the buy list because he's been unable to get um, enough Planeswalker points. And I think, I think this is uh, Wizards' recognition that they uh, upped the requirement for Planeswalker points and reduce the opportunities to get them. Um, and this is an attempt to fix it. But it also seems a, like an attempt to legitimize the uh, independent circuits. Uh, like, I, I don't know if you had a chance to read uh, Rich's uh, multi-part column on improving uh, the Pro Tour, but uh, one of his suggestions was expanding the uh, qualification system uh, with multiple tiers. And uh, this seems like a step in that direction, where you're, you're not necessarily creating a new tier of ways to access the Pro Tour, um, but you're definitely creating a parallel tier in which uh, you have an opportunity to earn, earn Planeswalker points to get you buys to hopefully get you a better record in a GP and maybe get you an invite, but also directly get an invite to the Pro Tour, just an alternate route to the Pro Tour. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I I think it's a good sign for the growth of magic that I think Wizards is saying, you know, we can't, we don't even need to provide the entire, you know, competitive environment for this game. You know, I mean, the Pro Tour for a long time was just, you know, we'll throw money at this thing to make it, you know, as a promotional item and as advertising and get people to play. And now it's to the point where I could see, you know, assuming the magic keeps growing or at least stays where it is and maintains itself for another 10 years, I could see, you know, maybe Star City or other in organizers just basically running the Grand Prix system in place of Wizards. You know, that's yeah. way, way, the direction Star City is heading with their multi-day opens and all of their various qualifiers and things. I think it's a good sign. Uh, it's a good, and it's also a good sign that, you know, Wizards thinks that Star City is legit, <laughs> and maybe TCG Player and some of these other circuits either will do well enough, or people will be motivated to try to organize them. And if that just means there's more magic to be played, and yes, you can go back to actually getting Planeswalker points again. You know, I'm I had like four thousand Planeswalker points last season. You know, I mean, I won a PTQ, and that was back when they still gave you a thousand bonus, but. Even taking that out, like I easily surpassed the two buys, and now that the season started over, it's like you know, I've got like four hundred so far, and I'm like, I'm actually having to think, hmm, what do I need to do to get back to having two buys? Because I've had two buys for the last two, at least the last two years, and it's really nice. Yeah, I mean, PTQs, if you did well in them, uh, were kind of like mini GPs in terms of the planeswalker points you could get from them, and uh, I know my two buys 
relied heavily on doing well at a few PTQs, as well as doing well at a couple GPs. Um, but speaking of GPs, uh, Wizards made a very surprising announcement. I, I don't think anybody saw this one coming. Um, no. Which, uh, you know, is kind of bittersweet for a perennial 6-3 GP day one uh, contestant like me. Um, but Ellen Bergeau also announced that uh, now the cut for day two will be at 18 points. Um, I assume they will be uh, nine round day one still. So that means uh, anybody with a six and three record or better, so like six, two, and one, or um, X2 or X1 or undefeated, will be making uh, the day two of GP events for the future. Um, this. I kind of wish this had happened earlier, as uh, I'm sure a lot of us are. Uh, I've, I've made day two of exactly one GP, but if, if I look back at all of my previous GP uh, records, I would have only ever missed day two twice. And that's, uh, that's, that's a bittersweet moment, because those are a lot of drafts that I, uh, I could have had for free. <laughs> Yeah, you are you have six and three to a lot of GPs. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's nice that you get to play all day and you get a bunch of points, but it usually means you lost your last round, or maybe you lost the round before and then played it out, and you don't get to come back. And it it's always you, anytime if I'm looking at the GP standings from an event uh, after day one to see who made day two, and then you scroll down to the people who have eighteen points and you see a bunch of people and you say, oh. I know them. I feel bad. <laughs> that sucks. Or I've yeah. been there before. Oh god, it's crazy. I mean, this is going to be a lot more people on day two. Yeah. Did you uh, did you come to GP Wooster? Uh, sorry, not Wooster. Worcester. Boston. Uh, the Boston GP. I did not. That was the one where Rich did Modern Hero, right? Uh, yeah, that was the one where uh, Rich became famous. Um, yeah. Or I guess the culmination of his fame. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was the worst round nine experience anybody. Uh, I've ever seen anybody have. Uh, we had like easy six or seven Brooklynites um, at X2, and just everybody lost. It was so brutal. Um, not that not that the X3 cutoff is really going to change it that much. There's still going to be people who get knocked out by getting their fourth loss. Um, but uh, Ellen Bergeau specifically noted in her justification, uh, or it, for her in her reasoning as to why Wizards wanted to set the cutoff at X and 3. Um, she noted that people were traveling for these GPs wanting to play, and they felt like the with the increased attendance, like not enough people were playing on day 2. So what that, what that said to me is Wizards is seeing a lot more of a, like a festival, a slightly more casual atmosphere at these day 1s and day 2s. Um, but the problem was a lot of the people showing up um, were not making day 2. Uh, not enough of them, and so there were there were a significant number of people who were knocked out of the tournament and uh, ended up either playing side events or leaving. And uh, they they seem to be recognizing that, sure, you may be out of top eight contention with three losses, but there's very little reason why, you know, you, you shouldn't keep playing. You paid, I mean, at this point, what is sixty dollars for a limited GP? I yeah, mean, you, you threw sixty bucks at the event organizer. You might as well get two more drafts uh, for free. So. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it it not only does it let more people play on day two, but it makes more games of day one relevant. You know, because a lot of people would go to a GP, and then as soon as you pick up your third loss, you know, a lot of people just drop, and they're like, oh, well, my weekend's over now. I'm now I'm switching into 
hanging out and doing side drafts and getting a card signed and things. And now I think a lot more people are going to play all or most of the rounds on day one. Uh, and it just, yeah, it just seems like you're getting a little more value for the trip, even if you're not someone who's you're not expecting to win or top eight. Yeah. That you can just, you know, you can play all nine rounds. You know, six and three is, you know, five and four is not that hard to do at a GP. Six and three is still hard. Um, and so I think that, I think it'll be good. It'll be interesting to see, like, if there's five or 600 people on day two of a GP, especially for limited. I mean, they're, looks like they're doing less limited GPs now, or I don't know, but I don't, I don't know if they're actually less, but they, they've structured them so that they have one weekend, I guess, like right after, it's like right before each pro tour. Yeah. They have three different GPs in different cities around the world. Um, that are all limited. Yeah. Yeah. That are all limited all at the same time. And so there's still have a lot of limited GPs, but basically, if you assuming you stay within one region, you have in the U.S. you know or in North America, you have one individual limited GP every season, as opposed to now usually there's two. Uh, so that's a little that's a little disappointing. It looks like they're having more team limited GPs though, which is awesome. Uh, team yeah, there's team one in DC. So yes, one in DC in March. There's one in Louisville too, which is going to be yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, so if it turns out that it just means that you get to play one limited GP and then one team limited GP each season, or you know maybe six six GPs a year, and then if you want to go to more GPs, obviously there's plenty of standard GPs. There's standard GP in New York City, and yeah. there's one in Denver next year. So yeah, and they try to play in both of them. GP Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said it's gonna be GP Terminal Five. Yeah. Oh yeah, we could go play <laughs> Terminal Five. We could go play. Uh, I, I was just imagining it at uh, Fresh Kills. Um. Yeah. <laughs> There's. It'll be interesting. I, I would be surprised if it's at the Javits Center, which is the big convention center in the New York City. The very nice big convention center. Yeah, it's a not cheap, and it's also not that easy to get to because they haven't extended the subway line out there yet. So you have to. You know, hike hike a few or take a take a car or whatever. It'll probably it wouldn't surprise me if GP New York City is in the same place as GP New Jersey was last year. Yeah, I was surprised. <laughs> which is like the Edison Convention Center, which is geographically not that far from New York City. I mean, it's just right over on the other side of the water in New Jersey, but it still takes like forty five minutes to get there because it's. That's just how New York is. <laughs> and there, there isn't there's generally not a reason to want to go to that part of New Jersey if you don't have to. So they haven't built like quick rail or anything. Yeah. Speaking uh, speaking of traveling, uh, the final uh, announcement of note by Ellen Bergeau was uh, that uh, in order to address the fact that people in isolated areas were having to travel uh, significant distances for our PTQs. Um, there are now going to be two uh, Moto RPTQs um, on one one a weekend. So two two different PTQs on two different weekends. Sorry, uh, two PTQs, one on each weekend. Um, so that if you do not live within reach of any of the RPTQs, you aren't forced to travel a significant distance in order to compete. Um, which I think. A lot of people will be very thankful for, especially since uh, those of us, those of us in New York City, uh, we don't have access to many cars, and they haven't done a particularly good job of uh, ensuring public transit to the uh, location of the Northeast RPTQs. Um, 
So it's, I think that's a pretty good change, even though I'll never be competing in them. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see you know, what the status of those Modo RPTQs are. Like, if it's only open to people who won paper RPTQs, and then like, maybe they end up being smaller because there are only so many people who qualify that way. Or if they do some, I imagine that they'll have some online qualifiers for them also, so that they're a good size tournaments. But it's great. I mean, and it is really, really, it's always been really hard to qualify for the Pro Tour if you don't live someplace that's close to events. Um, and now with the PPTQ system, it's become even harder because instead of having a few bigger events that you could travel to, there's just a bunch of smaller events that you just can't travel to. Yeah, that's exciting. Yes, it, it is. Um, they also want, they had one, there's one other travel bonus that they put in that if you go X and 2 at a GP now, even if you don't make top 8, you get a plane ticket to the Pro Tour. Yeah, that's a good point. That's, that's a Just, very important very important point. Um, it, it and they raised, the, they raised the payouts, supposedly, on the GPs. Yeah, it, it looks like uh, it's not a significant raise. No, uh, and it sounds like most of that money is going to be going towards the uh, the top eight prize payout rather than uh, the min payouts. Yeah, um, I think that's right. But that's good. I mean, it's a good right sign. It's you... recognition that the current prize support is inadequate. But yeah, if you're winning four thousand dollars for winning, uh, you know, a two thousand person GP where you played eighteen rounds, for that's. You know, I I would take it. You yeah. know, but I'd no. be happier if it gets seventy five hundred or six thousand or even five thousand. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. For sure. And it it changes the calculus on the do you take the foil tarmogoyf? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any anything well, else, be man? I hear a siren outside, which says it's time to go. Oh yeah. All right. Um, well, I well we should say you know congratulations to Mike Sigrist, who's the player of the year. Oh yeah. He beat out Eric Froelich by like I don't know however many points you get for coming in second in a pro tour instead of third, <laughs> you know. Uh, so probably like two or three, and that was amazing. It was cool to be able to watch that. It, it was funny to be able to watch Eric Froelich was doing commentary. He had started zero and three, went zero three in his first draft, which is crazy. Like because he's one of the best drafters in the in the game, and for him to go zero three in a pro tour draft is pretty surprising and then he ended up in the whole tournament 12 and 4 yeah it's a sick run yeah and so he he made it so that the only way anyone could catch him for player of the year is if mike sigrist made it to the finals and which he did and it's kind of funny because sigrist is tests with team face-to-face games who has joined up with team channel fireball so he and eric froelich were on the same testing team and they played the same deck um and i once like I don't know. I feel like it's a good story for Eric Froelich. He's become a lot more friendly, you know, since like I played him in a in a feature match at GP Oklahoma City like, two years that. ago. Yeah. yeah, and he was a little a little bit grumpy, you know. <laughs> I never went thought of him that way. And he's done a lot of good work to you know become less grumpy. And you know, he just got elected to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and he's been playing ridiculously amazing Magic, and. You know, it was interesting to see him on Sunday, you know, as like doing the commentary for the Pro Tour Top 8. And he obviously wants Mike Sigris to do well, um, you know, the teammates, friends. And, but he, does, he would prefer if, he met, if Ifro maintained his, or not rookie of the year, player of the year, which also would have made him the captain of the U.S. World Magic Cup team. 
Um, and then they were saying, well, he's either got to come in first or second. And then the point at which he made, Sigris made the finals, I was like, well, now you have to root for him to win because he's your teammate. Obviously, you want him to win. He's already gotten to the point where he, he's taken the prizes from you. Mm-hmm. You cheer for him. And then he loses in that painful that's game so five where he also And it's like, oh, you, you got everything except for the win. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's but- good. The Hall of Fame election will soften the blow. I'm sure he'll be all right. Yeah, he's he's doing all right in Magic, and he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this just puts a lot of pressure on Paul Cheon, right? He's uh, he's the only one of that friend group to not be a Hall of Fame member. Yeah, he's he's got some work cut out for him. He started out, I think he was six and two or something on yeah. day one, and then went like one and seven yeah, on day two. Right? Yeah, I heard he was sick, but you know that's no excuse. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's an exciting weekend, that's for sure. Uh, thanks for joining me, to be back. And uh, I guess uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, if you're looking for more, you can find us uh, at doomtravelers.com. If you're, uh, if you want to follow us, we're at doomtravelers on Twitter. Um, and as always, the Doom Travelers are brought to you by Hipsters of the Coast and uh, Casthaven.com. And uh, I don't know if I were rich, I would uh, turn off the stream right now.